Passages of Sarah Schulman's prose read alternately like eloquent gossip, internalized television reportage, and lucid East Village prose poems. She places with impressive accuracy the power, allure, and confusion of people's sexual preferences, revealing the viability and limitations of intimacy as the impetus for political response. Her characters are smart, and though their problems are accounted often ironically and in broad satire, I find myself wondering if and when, faced with their difficulties, if I could figure them out any better. That is to say that the marginalization of people's day-to-day -day experience and the fragmentation of culture will require collective, not individual, solutions. But current conditions being what they are will make any such solutions complex and difficult to construe. Sarah Schulman is the author of four novels, The Sophie Horowitz Story, Girls, Visions, and Everything, After Dolores, and People in Trouble, E.P. Dutton, 1990. After Dolores received the American Library Association's award for Best Lesbian Novel in 1988, and a libretto of People in Trouble has been commissioned by the Houston Grand Opera. Sarah writes regularly on AIDS and other issues for various publications, including The Village Voice, and has received a New York Foundation for the Arts Fiction Fellowship. I've been very much looking forward to her reading. Please welcome Sarah Schulman. Thank you. This reading is dedicated to Kevin Smith, Oliver Johnson, Bob Smith, Vito Russo, Ray Navarro, and Tim Lugos, all of whom died of AIDS in the last five weeks. It was the beginning of the end of the world, but not everyone noticed right away. Some people were dying. Some people were busy. Some people were cleaning their houses while the war movie played on television. The cigarette in the mouth of the woman behind the register was cemented with purple lipstick. She had lipstick smeared on her smock. Tiny caterpillars of gray ash decorated the sticky glass countertop. I'll take these two, Kate told her, holding each bra in a different hand. You better try them on, the clerk answered with a quick professional assessment. These are too big for you, miss, and after a certain age, you can't count on growing any more in that direction. They're not for me, Kate said, enjoying herself thoroughly. Cash, please. Which one would Molly wear first? She held them in her hands, absentmindedly running the material through her fingers. Kate would see them on Molly's body before she touched them in place. There was the demure lace that opened from the front like walking in through a garden gate. Then there was the really dirty push-up that didn't need to open. Kate could lift Molly's breasts right out over the top. Kate held them in her hands. She could run her fingers over the lace and feel its texture as she felt Molly's nipples changing underneath. Leopard print crotchless panties on sale, the woman added, folding ashes into the wrapping paper. Maybe your friend would like a pair of these too. Great with skirts. It would be three days before she saw Molly again. 
Kate climbed the stairs to her lover's apartment and left the package by the front door with a private note. When they did meet on schedule, Kate felt a certain nervous eroticism, wondering which one Molly had chosen, which one was waiting for her under Molly's soft blouse. You're sexy, Kate told her at dusk. You have languid eyes and beautiful breasts. I gift wrap them as a present to myself. Your breasts are beautiful, creamy, and sweet. She pressed her hands from Molly's face to her chest and felt the shape of the lace underneath, but then kept going back to that wisp waist and the sloping shelf at the end of her back. But it's your ass that turns me on tonight. Tonight it's your ass that's hot. And then she thought, am I really saying these things? Molly pulled her out of the early streetlight and into a shadow so that the gypsy reading fortunes in the storefront across the way wouldn't have to push her kids into the back room out of sight. Molly arched her ass, sliding over Kate's flesh so that Kate felt her lover's warm body against her chest and the cool brick wall on her back. Let's go up on your roof, Kate said. You really want to do it, don't you, Molly laughed, her neck smelling like cucumber. Guess so. Let's go, Molly said, looking sparkly and quite lovely. Besides, there's not that much time left. There was a change then to a quiet happiness and a certain sense of contentment that accompanied them up the stairs. On top of the building, there was only heaven and a radio rising from illuminated shapes. A man was smoking somewhere. They could hear him cough. The radio was a thin reed. There was a child to the right and silverware clattering all below. There were undiscernible cars frequently and a chime and a voice. To a certain extent, she had gotten used to hearing about people dying. She hadn't gotten used to seeing it, but now when someone said, I couldn't call you back because a friend of mine died, it was said calmly. This dying had been going on for a long time already, so long, in fact, that there were people alive who did not remember life before AIDS, and for Molly, it had made all her relations with men more deliberate and detailed. First, the men changed. They were more vulnerable and open and needed to talk, so she changed. Passing acquaintances became friends, and when her friends actually did get sick, there was a lot of shopping to do, picking up laundry and looking into each other's eyes. She had never held so many crying men before in her life. Molly had recently spent three months cooking dinner for a man who was so disoriented he couldn't decide how to cut the spinach. There were drugs that he wanted to try, but the Food and Drug Administration would not approve them. I'm dying, he said, before the dementia set in. Let me take the goddamn drug. The best he could find was a placebo program where half the men got sugar and the other half got experimental drugs. No one knew who got what. Why do they need a comparison study, he said to everyone. They already know what happens if you don't treat it. 
He did not say that to the doctors, though, because he was afraid that if he made trouble, they would give him sugar instead of medicine. He got old very fast. He said the telephone was on fire. His skin broke open. His mother came in from St. Louis and kissed his face when it was covered with sores. He went to the hospital, and then he went home. Then he went to the hospital. Then he went home. Then he went to the hospital. Then he died in the hospital. One day, Molly and this man, Ronnie Lavalli, 1954 to 1987, were sitting in his living room watching Paul Morrissey's trash on his VCR. They were eating Chinese food and drinking Chinese beer, while on the TV, Joe D'Alessandro was a junkie who couldn't get a hard-on but didn't really care and was still beautiful. His girlfriend was Holly Woodlawn, the drag queen, and her sister and ex-lover was played by a pregnant, naked Viva. I love this movie, Ronnie said. It is the greatest acting in any movie, except for Valerie Perrine in Lenny. Then he said, Molly, would you look at this? And he lifted up his shirt like a little boy asking his mommy to look at his tummy. What is it, he said. Well, that looks like a mole to me, she said. How long have you had it? Four weeks. Well, she said, remembering when her other friend, Joseph DiCarlo, 1960 to 1982, had his face covered with splotches. I've seen lesions, and they're usually raspberry, I think. I mean, I've never seen a brown one before, and this is brown. Molly sat back, relieved, but Ronnie had an expression on his face that she had never seen on any face before. What about this one, he said, pulling up his pants leg. It was red. I don't want to die, he said. She tried to think of something else, something calming, but there was nothing else. It wasn't like turning to another channel on the TV because AIDS was on all of them, but only in the most idiotic terms. Everyone on television who died of AIDS got it from a blood transfusion. Or else it was a beautiful young professional with everything to live for, and even then the show focused on his parents and not him. Why can't they just say it? Why can't they just say ass-fucking on Channel 4? Jeffrey Rekshoff in 1958 to 1988 had been a journalist for a gay newspaper in Washington, D.C. When a senator died of a blood transfusion, Jeffrey knew he'd been living with his boyfriend for years. When Jeff was first diagnosed, he decided to move back to New York City and worked at the AIDS hotline whenever he felt well enough. Sometimes Molly would meet him for lunch right near the office. He ate strictly macrobiotic. Jeffrey had looked around carefully at treatments, and he chose the creative visualization approach combined with various medications. He wore crystals. He carried a teddy bear and went for daily massage. He did yoga and said, I love you, to himself in the mirror every morning and night. It kept him alive for four years and three weeks when he was supposed to die in 18 months. He hung on long enough to be wheeled in a wheelchair at the front of the Gay March on Washington so he could see what 600,000 homosexuals looked like smiling in front of the White House. 
He wore a shirt that said, I have AIDS, hug me. The day he died, the New York Post reported a bank robbery in Midtown by two men in black t-shirts with pink triangles over which were scrawled the words, justice. They did not wear masks. They had no guns. According to Cordelia Williams, a teller interviewed by the Post, they slipped her a note that said, we have AIDS, we have nothing to lose. This money will go to people who have no health insurance. She gave them $15,000 without setting off the alarm. My brother died of AIDS, she told reporters as she was led away in handcuffs. So why should I send the police after those brave men? You know what's really incredible, Jeffrey had said over one of those macrobiotic lunches. It is amazing for me to see firsthand the extent to which people calling the hotline will go to deny their homosexuality. There are so many closet cases out there, even when it is anonymous to a stranger over the phone. Like today, this guy calls with pure macho panic in his voice. He thinks he has AIDS because he had sex once 10 years ago with a prostitute and he didn't use a condom. So I told him he had nothing to worry about. You probably can't get AIDS from women, I told him, unless you swallow their menstrual blood. Did you swallow her menstrual blood? I knew he hadn't, of course, too macho. So he says, but they say on TV you can get it from prostitutes. They said it on the movie of the week. Don't believe what you see on TV, I tell him. But the guy wouldn't get off the phone. He kept hemming and hawing, saying, are you sure, are you sure? So I finally get the message and gave him what he wanted. Are you having sex with men, I asked. No, 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 not me, he says. Are you sure? Are you sure you didn't do it just once? Just to see what it was like? Once because you were really horny? Once because you were so drunk you didn't realize what you were doing and before you knew it, some faggot... You know, he says, something is coming back to me now that you mention it. Yeah, I think I was really plastered, totally smashed, like that. You have to give them every excuse in the world so they can tell you what they did without admitting to being gay. I think we should change the name of this country to the United States of Denial. This epidemic will never be taken care of properly until people can be honest about sex, not even what they desire, just what they do. And you know, Molly, the world's going to have to stand on its head before the people who live in it will be honest about what they feel sexually. Jeffrey's apartment was covered with fresh-cut flowers, and he always played soothing music. Even when he went into the hospital for the last time, his buddy from Gay Men's Health Crisis dragged along Jeff's cassette player so he could go out listening to gamelan music. Gamelan and fresh flowers. But at the end, of course, being human, he panicked. He got mad at his buddy when he was moved to intensive care. Then he refused to sign the release form, saying he didn't want to be kept on life supports. I won't need it, he said. Three days before he died, Jeffrey got a letter from some people in San Francisco who were doing an anthology of journalists with AIDS. Did he want to submit a piece? No, he said, emaciated. It wouldn't be fair. I mean, I'll be the only one in the whole book who's still alive, and for the rest of my career I'll have to shake the stigma, you know, the AIDS thing.
On Tuesday night, Justice had met for the first time in its new home. The membership had simply grown too large for anybody's basement. Now they gathered in the abandoned St. Mark's bathhouse, closed down by the mayor right after he closed the mine shaft. The crowd was huge. Now Daisy, an older Puerto Rican woman with long gray hair, co-facilitated the meetings. And she began every session with a big smile on her face and an announcement. If there is anyone here from the Federal Bureau of Investigation or the New York City Police Department, you are required by law to identify yourself now. The presence of women changed the justice guys just a bit. It made for a co-ed institution, one in which, except for a few indiscretions, the sexes rarely mixed intimately. Well, that puts us in a special category, Molly said, with other famous fag dyke teams like the Catholic Church, Hollywood, and the Olympics. <laughs> the crowd filled the empty tile pool, sitting around the ledge and on the tasteful steps. The cubicles had been turned into nap rooms, not offices. This is a grassroots movement, Daisy said. We don't need offices. We're employed in offices. Steal Xerox, take whiteout, use postage machines, make phone calls. Your job is a prison of measured time, so make their time work for you. The baths had seemed musty to Kate at first, but the men oohed and awed, remembering what it was like before. Remembering with some nervousness the last time each of them had been there. They were warm and joking with one another, like adults returning to the sand lot. I feel like Judas Maccabee back at the trashed-out temple, Bob said. Throughout the meeting, different people's wristwatch alarms kept going off with little beeps. What's going on? Kate asked. Is everyone's schedule crazy? Whenever I come to these meetings, watch alarms keep going off. It's to remind them to take their AZT, Molly told her every four hours. Oh. Fabian took up his old spot in the corner and tried out his old pose, an imaginary drink in hand, and his left foot flat back against a pillar. You know what comes to mind right away, Fabian said? The village people singing Macho Man. Remember that one? No one had given them permission to use the old bathhouse. They just took it. Justice was getting very aggressive. They had no ideology except stopping AIDS, and because they had made that their priority, they behaved as though it was the world's priority. Meanwhile, attendance at meetings had grown to well over 500, and numbers like that meant all kinds. All kinds. There were the tough street types who had all been around the block a couple of times. There were distinguished homosexuals with white boy jobs who had forgotten that they were queer until AIDS came along and everyone else reminded them. At first, the white callers had wanted to bring lawsuits and carry out polite picket lines, while others had been willing to bash in a few heads at the expense of getting bashed themselves. But soon, the two factions were able to unite in anger and a commitment to direct action when the homosexuals found out what a lifetime of anger could create and the faggots discovered that nothing raises the level of outrage as efficiently as the level of expectation. There was also a contingent of old-time radicals of various stripes who had rioted in the 60s at Stonewall in Newark with the Young Lords, with SDS, and hadn't done a goddamn thing since. 
We like dikes, the guys would chant every once in a while when the women did something really great. And there were lots and lots of handsome young men who intended to live to be handsome old men or even just aging queens. They were the organization's best recruitment force since Justice's favorite activity after raising hell was the parade of boyfriends. Thank you. Thank you.